It's great to see you guys again. Uh, we are in John chapter 11, as Miss Jan just read. Um, she has been a blessing to this body. Um, and so if you see her around serving behind the scenes, she won't like the credit, but at least tell her thank you for getting you the most essential things, which is coffee and communion, okay? So like the two most important things maybe in the church are coffee and communion, and she does both of those. So if you see her around, tell her thank you. Uh, she has been a blessing, not just because of coffee and communion, but because of her heart uh, for the Lord and her heart for people. And so we're going to be in John chapter 11, uh, as you may know already, and we're getting to the end here of a series that we've entitled Encounters with Jesus, where we have purposed for this last couple of months to be able to go through and to talk about these stories of real people interacting with a real and holy God that ultimately leads to life transformation for them. And so for us, several thousand years later, our hope, our desire for this series is that you would see and hear and interact with these stories in such a way that it would strengthen you and encourage you in your faith to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. That is, he will say today that I am the resurrection and the life. That you not only understand and believe that statement, but then your actions uh, repeat that statement. Or you, your actions are based on that statement, a confidence in that statement that Jesus is who he says he is and he will actually do what he claims that he will do. And so before we get there, as you guys know, as we all know, context even more so now is king in our culture, that you have to know the whole picture before you kind of dig into the micro story. And so I want to give us a little bit of background, really just the first several verses of chapter 11, because they're important as we get into what Jesus is doing and how he is acting and what he ultimately will do in the healing of Lazarus. And so as you get into chapter 11, verse 2 tells you that, that there's this picture of Mary there on her knees washing the feet of Jesus. She then dries the feet of Jesus with her hair. It says later in scripture that, that Jesus loves Lazarus, that this was a family that loved Jesus and that Jesus loved And so as you get that picture of Mary there drying the feet of Jesus with her hair, you get the sense that this isn't something that just a common acquaintance would do, but this is something that is an intimate process between deeply connected people. And so Jesus loves this family, and this family loves Jesus. And so as they are doing this, the disciples are in Jerusalem, and they're with Jesus, and they're doing miraculous healings and things. They're bringing people uh, sight for the first time. They're helping people walk for the first time. And then Jesus, as he begins to develop a crowd or a following, that following turns into a gathering, and that gathering turns into a large group of people. And so the Jewish religious leaders and the Romans begin to wonder, who is this guy? And ultimately, what is his purpose being here? And so they begin to follow him. And then eventually, Jesus makes the statement that sets everything off. He says, I am. He claims that he is God. And the Jews, immediately knowing that that is a capital offense, that no one claims to be God other than God, pick up a stone, and they begin to try to kill him. And so Jesus is like, not today, it ain't my day. And so he flees out into the wilderness, and they set up shop, and they continue doing ministry. It's at this same time that Martha and Mary and Lazarus are at their home, and Lazarus gets sick, not just like, you know, drink some tea and honey in the morning sick because your throat's a little scratchy, but he gets like bad sick. And so they send a runner to Jesus. And the runner gets there and he delivers the message and it says, please come, Lazarus is sick. Jesus waits two days. 
You know, like that's an odd thing. Like he loves this man. Why wouldn't he go immediately and do what Jesus does, right? And he makes this odd kind of statement. He says, this is the illness that does not lead to death. Rather, this sickness will glorify God. And automatically, we've got a category here that Jesus brings up, a category of sickness that we don't like to talk about. A type of sickness that doesn't lead in death, but ultimately it glorifies God. And that's because that type of sickness is going to be filled with a ton of pain and maybe some suffering. And so Jesus continues to minister, and two days later, Lazarus dies. It is then that Jesus tells the disciples that they are going to Bethany, which for context is just two miles from Jerusalem. And he says, hey, Lazarus has died. And they're like, wait, he's dead? I thought you said he wasn't going to die, but now he's dead, and now you're wanting to go back to Jerusalem? Didn't they try to kill us there just a couple of days ago? Are you crazy? And so the disciples, and I think we can take solace in this, the disciples that oftentimes are more confused than we are, right? They're like, what in the world is going on here? To the point where Thomas is like, yeah, if you're going to Jerusalem, we're going with you, and we're all going to die together, Jesus. You can imagine Jesus being like, Tom, like, that is not what I'm talking about here. He says, no, we're, nobody's dying. In fact, we're going back, and I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead for the glory of my Father. And so that's where we pick it up, John 11, 17 through 27. Jesus gets to the house, and Lazarus has been dead for four days at this point. Mary and Martha get word that Jesus is in town. And Martha sprints out the door, and you're like, that's a weird thing for Martha to do because she's the rule follower. When Jesus comes to the house of Mary and Martha, you see Martha is the one that is trying to get the house ready, get everything in order, get the dinner made, and all that kind of stuff. And she's mad at Jesus, and she's mad at her sister because her sister Mary is just sitting there at Jesus' feet, not doing anything. And Jesus says, you're missing the point of why I'm here. And what your sister is doing is honoring me. And so Martha, the rule follower, Jewish custom and tradition of the day would have said that you sit in the house and you mourn and the family comes and the friends come and the professional mourners, which I think is kind of weird, come to the house and you all sit there for 30 days and you mourn together. And Martha says, I've had enough of this mess. I'm going to Jesus because I got a bone to pick with him. So she runs to him and the first words out of her mouth are, Lord, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. Matt Chandler says it's really easy to read the Bible backwards. It's harder to enter into the space of the text. To understand this encounter, we have to feel the emotion that Martha and Mary are feeling. Picture yourself in their house. Two sisters trying to nurse their dying brother back to health are really just trying to get him to stay alive for the next 12 hours, the next 24 hours, so that Jesus can get to the house, only for Jesus to no-show. How helpless that must have felt. Death is never an easy thing, and Martha and Mary have just watched life leave their brother's body, a, a brother who was healthy just a few days before. Now dead in their house with the only one that just by speaking a word can restore their brother back to life and to health. But he's not there. 
How traumatizing is that? How hurtful that must have been. To see the one that can heal your brother no-show. It's a heart-wrenching phrase. If you would have been here, he wouldn't be dead. Some of us, I think most of us, myself included, in the room this morning have experienced this. And through death of a loved one, through sickness, through events that you have lived through in your past, that you begin to make this if-only statement. And we're honest with ourselves and with God. We have moments that we only want to make these if-only statements to God. If only you would have been there. If only you wouldn't have allowed that. If only you would have allowed that. I never want to shy away from the questions that come up when these if-only statements are present. I think the most popular form of this question that I get on a regular basis is, how can a good and loving God let that happen to me or happen to someone that I love? We all have moments in our life that have defined us, and we cannot reconcile a loving God with the trauma that we have experienced. And we make one of two statements, I think. Either we say, God can't love me because of what I've done, or if God did love me, there is no way that he would have let that happen to me. Abuse, neglect, promiscuity, sin, death, all having their effect on our life cause us to make the statement, God, if only. If you love me and you're not against me, where were you? That's the statement that Martha makes. Remember to experience this moment with the sisters. We have a, we have a 21st century understanding of this story. At this point, Mary hasn't even left the house yet. The house is filled with people that she may not even know, mourning the death of a man they didn't know. It's filled with the sound of weeping over the death of Lazarus. Listen to what Martha says to Jesus after telling him, if you had only been here. John eleven twenty two through 26. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, that God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? What Jesus is asking of Martha, and I believe by proxy for all of us this morning, is he's asking for a trust that leads to action. He is asking for belief that leads to trust, that leads to action. Because we have to move from orthodoxy, which is what we believe to be true about God, to orthopraxy, which is true or right action based on our beliefs. That our belief motivates us to do something with what God has done and has caused us to know and to believe. That our beliefs have to inform our actions. If we believe that Jesus is the risen Son of God, that should change how we live. Not just how we think. Jesus is asking Martha, do you believe? And her response is like, yeah, I get it. I get it. You have the power to do these things. You can just ask God and he'll do these things with you and for you and however that works out. I believe that you're even going to resurrect him someday in the distant future. 
She believes that Jesus is a prophet, rabbi, healer, teacher, that Jesus has been in her house. He has sat at her table. And she says, I know whatever you ask from God, that God will grant you. But Jesus is now asking Martha, do you believe that I have the power over life and death? That I am the solution to your problem now and for eternity? Do you believe, Martha, that I can raise your brother from the dead? Do you believe that I can raise you from the dead? He says, I am the resurrection and the life. That I am the one that can solve your problems, not just some moment in the distant future, but now, Martha. Because the reality is for all of us that we are spiritually dead without Jesus, without him being the resurrection and the life, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins against God. And as a believer, he is not only the resurrection, but he is the life. He is the sustainer of your life, the author and perfecter of your life. As you believe in Jesus Christ, you don't stop growing in a knowledge of him, but you continue to grow in a knowledge of him, which informs your actions that you should take. The reality is that the more we know about Jesus, the more we know about ourselves. And the more we know about ourselves, the more we know about Jesus because we have been made in his image and according to his likeness. He is the originator of our life. He is the author and perfecter of our life. And so I think this is where we continue to use this this phrase from this place or from this platform is that we begin to understand the gospel in a better way, that you don't grow past the gospel, but rather you grow deeper into the gospel. Because Jesus is making an audacious statement here that he is the resurrection and the life. That it means that he has come to resurrect the part of our lives that have been made dead to sin because of sin, because of shame, because of guilt. And so what Jesus is offering here when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He is offering that somewhere in your past, every one of us has it. There is trauma, there is sin, there is guilt, there is shame, there is fear, there is any number of things that exist over here. And so Jesus coming to this earth is saying that I am here to resurrect those things, that I am here to redeem and to restore those things, to make those things good again for you and to bring you into a place where you can experience life apart from those things, not bound by those things. As Hebrews says that we are not easily entangled by those things anymore but rather he has given us freedom over those things and in giving us freedom over those things he is giving us life john 10 10 says that i am the life or i desire to give you life and life to the full and the only way that he can give us life to the full is by working on us and with us in the things that have held us enslaved to sin for decades And he says, come and walk with me and work with me and I will help you restore and recover your soul. And he says, oh, and by the way, I am the life and I've come to give you life in the future, not just now. And so when Jesus makes this audacious statement, he's not only claiming to be God, he is claiming to be the one that has the keys over life and death and the one that allows you or uh, keeps you or gives you entry into the kingdom of God. That is by Jesus and through Jesus and the sacrifice and death of Jesus that we are able to enter into an eternal kingdom, to eternal life with our Heavenly Father the author and the perfecter of our souls. And so I hope you see it this morning, that those tragic things that have happened to you, that God has not, 
has not abandoned you in those if-only parts of your life that have restricted you from a fullness of life that God desires to give you freedom from that. To resurrect those things and to give you life and life to the full, not just some distant day in the future, but now. Jesus is saying, all who believe in me will die on this earth. But they will not die an eternal death, but rather they will live because of the way that I have made for them. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me shall live for eternity. Verse 28. Before we get to verse 28, there's a question I think that becomes with this. of How does he do that? How does, how does God draw near to me? How does he resurrect what's so painful in my life? Because you don't know what I've done. You don't know what I thought five seconds ago, much less what happened 30 years ago. Verse 28. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and he is calling for you. The teacher is here and is calling for you. I don't mean to sound dramatic. I've started over the last couple of times to just ask the Lord, would you, would you give me a phrase or an idea or a thought that just sticks in my mind? Would you give me a piece of scripture that just I, I can't get rid of, Father, and would you help me just to sit with that phrase? And so I, I don't want to sound dramatic, but this is the phrase that kind of just stopped me in my tracks at about 1130 on Wednesday night. Thank you, Lord. Could it have been at 730 and not 1130? The teacher is here, and he is calling for you. Scripture tells us that where two or more are gathered in my name, that I am there with them, Jesus says. Jesus has come near this morning, and he is calling for you. Look at Mary's response. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Skipping down to verse 32. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord... If you had only been here, my brother would not have died. Notice what the Lord does with Mary in this moment. He doesn't rebuke her. He doesn't tell her to get over it. He doesn't just tell her to move on. He doesn't tell her any of those things. He doesn't even whisper into her ear his plan to raise her brother from the dead. He gives her the space to sit with what at this point must be tremendous grief. He gives her the space to question God. To be mad at him. To be upset with him. He doesn't remove the grief or the heartache from her life. He is simply present with her and then he weeps with her. Over the brokenness of this world and the fact that this world is not how his father has created it. Living with a transcendent God isn't always going to make sense. Jackie Hill Perry says the way God moves doesn't often align with our own logic since he doesn't share our nature or our essence. He is not like us. We run from pain, he uses it. We hate our enemies, he loves them. We try to hold on to our life with clenched fists and he commands another way, the way of death, which somehow, some way, causes us to find the life that we thought we were losing. This all means is that we are going to have moments in life just like Mary and Martha. Jesus says that no servant is greater than his master, that if I have died and will die, you will also 
experience these same things. Pain and suffering are not separate from the Christian life. It's a resurrection and a, pro- and a life, a resurrection and life promise that God is steadfast, that He is full of loving kindness, that He draws near to the brokenhearted, the crushed, and the perplexed, that He binds up our wounds and that He heals our hearts. He listens to the cries of help, He hears our screams of anger. He grieves with you and He grieves for you, and pain is all that you feel. Even when you don't know what to say, His Spirit speaks for you. God has and is creating space for you to ask the questions to allow you to sit and rest from the chaos of this world and the perfect peace of his presence. To recognize your limited ability to control and to begin to uncover what hurts and the trauma and the grief have planted little barbs inside of your body that hurt when you try to begin to remove them. As you think about what is unclear you will become frustrated, but he desires to provide clarity to our disordered thoughts. God's desire, God desires our questions. He looks forward to answering our if-only statements with grace and love. Ultimately, he desires the healing of your soul. Asking questions develops intimacy with God as we are able to be vulnerable with him. Reading his word ceases to be laborious and begins to be a place where you find God and you find your answers to life's deepest questions because you have a relationship with the one who has authored that, the relationship with the one who has authored you. God desires to draw near to us. First Peter 5.10 becomes an encouragement. It says, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering allows us the opportunity to run to our Savior, to allow him to reveal to us what is best. Jesus hasn't come to just give you just what's okay, what's mediocre. He's come to give you what is best, not only for this life, but for eternity. For Alexis and I, this was a journey with infertility in moments of pain. I, I tend to think that we cancel the faithfulness of God because of our current circumstances. And, and y'all, that was a, just reflecting on that this week, th- that was a sucky process. And I would use a different five-letter word if it wasn't recorded and I wasn't on the stage with a microphone. That was a sucky process. more disappointment than we could ever want, ever could imagine or wanted to go through. And, and I won't speak for Alexis, but for, for me, the Lord used that four and a half years of suffering to rip out of me any notion that I have control. As Jackie Hill Perry said, that we often try to, with clenched fists, control our lives. He used it to help me be more empathetic to the people who are He's experiencing pain. He reminded me constantly that this world and the things that fill it are not my sense of hope or joy or pleasure. And finally, he uses even the hardest things of any experience to bring about my good and his eternal glory. 
And I could not be more thankful to the Lord for it as it has forced me to be dependent on him and to seek him and ultimately to trust in and rest upon his promises to me that my belief in who he is is confirmed and in my confirmation of who he is that I desire to act based on those beliefs. The Lord desires to draw near with you. Will you run to him? To allow him to resurrect what has been broken and to give you life and life to the full. Mary and Martha are sitting with all the others who are in the house mourning. And Jesus asks, where have you laid Lazarus? And so they take him to the tomb and Jesus says, open the tomb. And Martha is like, Lord, there's going to be a bad odor there because Lazarus has been dead for four days. Now, here's my, we're two weeks from Christmas. Here's my early Christmas present to you. Later, later today, not now, because I know we all have devices, right? Leave them in your pockets, okay? Look up verse 39 in the KJV. It stands for King James Version. It's the old one that says, like, ye spaketh to me, those types of things. I'm not making fun of it, but it's just old English, okay? And so look up verse 39, and, and I'm not making this up. In fact, I told this to Doug and Ben at lunch the other day. And Doug, like, ultimately, like, immediately, like, pulls out his phone to fact check me. It was like Facebook in real life. And, uh, and so he immediately checks this in the Internet just to make sure it's real. And it says, verse 39, it says, the word stinketh here. He says, she says, Lord, it's going to stinketh. I'm like, if that's not more Arkansas, I don't know what is. Lord, that stinketh. I just thought that was great. So there's your early Christmas present. 39, verse 39, chapter 11 later. Um, the verse also mentions that Lazarus has been here dead here for four days. It seems odd, but Jewish custom, again, would say that they believe the spirit of the person would hang out and around the person for three days after they had died. And so Jesus here in this moment, in his divine ability, is going, hey, we're going to let him be there for four days so that there is no superstition around this. There is no question around this that Lazarus isn't dead. He's like dead, dead. And so here's the beauty of Jesus being the resurrection and life when Lazarus comes hopping out of the grave. So they, they roll the stone back. Jesus declares he doesn't do any incantations. He doesn't do any of those type things. He just simply declares Lazarus come out. Scripture says he shouts it. And Lazarus comes hopping out of the grave, still bound in grave clothes. What do you think happens in that moment to all the sadness? To the anger, to the frustration, to the statements of God, where were you when I was experiencing that? What happens? Does it not vanish the moment that Lazarus hops out of the grave? alive, resurrected from the dead? Where has Mary and Martha's hope been up until this point? It's been in a a future resurrection, someday off in the distant future. But Jesus brings the the hope of the future into the present suffering, and and by doing so, he restores the past. He is the resurrection and the life And so I think this becomes our wrestle. Do we believe with that? Do you believe that Jesus being the resurrection and the life has come to resurrect your past, to sit with you in your doubts and questions, and to give you a hope for the future because of what he has done? Do you believe that? 
And if you do, what changes should you make in your life? How does it look to live differently after believing that Jesus, unlike Lazarus, died and three days later later rose from the dead, never dying again, but actually taking his seat at the right hand of his heavenly Father? And in raising the dead, that God is promising to you that he will also raise you from death and usher you into an eternal life. In a place that Revelation 21.4 says that God will wipe every tear from your eye, that there will be no weeping, no fighting, no crying, no mourning, no death. That the lion will lay down with the lamb. What an incredible picture that is. That our hope is not in the things of this world, that we are not defined by the sum of our choices and mistakes, and that God so dearly loves us and loves his creation that he sent his perfect son to be the resurrection and the life. So that we can have hope in the pain of this world as we live out of, out of the calling of God on our lives. Expectantly waiting for the moment in which he makes all things new. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. I love the word, the, the, the Aramaic phrase there for shall never die is never die ever. Jesus is promising that if you believe in him, that if you profess with your mouth and you believe in your heart, that all of the pain, all the shame, all the sin that you experience in this world, that his death and resurrection has covered that. And in believing that, that he brings you into an eternal reality that is better than you can ever understand or imagine. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? This morning we're going to take uh, communion together as a body. And so as we, as we take it home this morning, I, I, I think at times that I, I have a tendency to just kind of skip by things that become tradition or things that I, I've memorized that I just kind of do, you know, certain habits or behaviors that I have that I just, kind of, I just kind of go through life and I just kind of kind of walk by those things without really giving them much thought. And so as I thought about communion this week, one of the things that I thought about is how potentially communion for us can become just something that we do out of rote memorization. That we don't take the, the time to think or to process what's actually happening in that moment. That Jesus is describing and prescribing how he is going to be the resurrection and the life. And so for us, I thought it would be useful for us, for myself, to just read this Scripture, this is Matthew 26. It'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. Matthew 26, starting in verse 26. And this is the upper room meal that the disciples are having just hours before Jesus is going to be accused, arrested, beaten, and killed. Now as they were eating, Jesus took, took bread and after blessing it broke and gave it to the disciples and said, take eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many of the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink with it with you, drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is describing how he fulfills the promise to be the resurrection and life. 
It is this sacrifice. It is through this sacrifice that we can have relationship with him. The gospel is a simple message. It is through the profession of faith that you believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that his blood covers all of your sin for all of eternity. And that is why it gives you relationship. It is nothing that you can do or have done or will do or should do in the future. It is all Christ's sacrifice for you. And that's what gives you eternal life. Jesus does this to draw near to us, to give you life and life to the full, as well as life eternal. And so as, as, as Josh and Leah, as they play for a little bit, and then we'll finish up with a couple of songs, as you, as you come this morning, think about the sacrifice that Christ has made in order to have a relationship with you. That in just a, a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate Christmas. And I don't mean to get political or anything. You know this. Like, Christmas is not about gifts and presents and Santa Claus. Christmas is about the ultimate gift. And that ultimate gift is that God, having so loved all of us, sent his one and only son into this world to die so that we may have eternal life with him. And so when we talk about the Advent season, when we talk about hope and peace, we're not talking about things that are ethereal just out there in the, in the, in the, in the world somewhere. We're talking about the God of hope. And we are talking about the God of peace who is drawn near to all of us and who desires to have a relationship with us that not just helps us in this life, but saves us for eternity. Don't skip out on that. Don't miss what the Lord is doing. And so consider those things. Do I believe that he is the resurrection and the life? Do I believe that when he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood spilled and poured out for you? It's not just a random story, but it is the God of the universe drawing near to you this morning. And so if you guys would, if you would exit out the left-hand side of your row, We'll start in the front, way, front rows and work our way back. Exit out the left and return on your right. Um, you can take the communion, the bread, and the cup, and you can do that and minister that for yourselves whenever you desire. And then, like I said, Josh and Leah here in a few minutes will continue uh, just to finish out our service together. All right, a few front rows if you guys will come, and then we'll filter our way through. Amen to that, right? You can clap if you want. We can be excited about that. <laughs> he is the resurrection and the life. The question is, do you believe that? He is hope. He is peace. He is everything that we need. Uh, if there's any way that we can be helpful to you, if I can be helpful to you, if any of our elders or their wives or staff can be helpful to you, we will be down here in the front. We would love to pray for you or talk with you or just consider things with you. That's what we're here for. And so if you uh, need anything, prayer, just someone to talk, maybe give you a hug, that's what we're here for, all right? Uh, you guys go know what to do from here. Go love first. Have a great week of worship. We'll see you all next week.